Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we've come to the seven churches. Just going to take one church at a time. John is on the island of Patmos, and um, John went to Ephesus. We are told in church history, John went to Ephesus after the fall of Jerusalem around 70 A.D., so he was there, apparently, when they arrested him at the church at Ephesus. And uh, history tells us that he did not die on Patmos, but goes back to Ephesus as a very old man, where finally he will die. With that said, let's, uh, let's begin in verse 1 in this message to the church at Ephesus. Let me, first of all, preface it by saying we don't pay enough attention, I think, in the churches these days to the Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Uh, these, are, these are from the Lord Christ. They're seven. The seven you're going to see that the number seven is the number of, of completeness or fullness uh, typologically in, uh, in uh, the Revelation. So here there are seven churches. And uh, in my view... These seven churches have faced something that, number one, all churches will face at one time or another, and that, number two, there are churches here and there who could completely identify with one of the seven churches, and number three, I'm also a believer that this is representative of the ages of the church, the ages within the church, uh, and so it's important, I think, for us to look at it uh, from those perspectives. But it's always good from time to time for a church to do a study in the seven churches of the Revelation. We're going to start at Ephesus. Let's, let me talk about Ephesus first. Ephesus, Acts, what, Acts chapters 19 and 20, somewhere along in there. Uh, the Apostle Paul is there. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are there. Apollos. Uh, um, this is a this is a this is a church with a lot of uh, powerful teaching. Paul spent quite a bit of time there uh, as the pastor teacher of the church. Uh, he stayed there until he had to leave because the Christian faith and the gospel message turned the whole city upside down. People were leaving uh, the pagan ritual religions um, and coming to Christianity, and this was disrupting the economy. Uh, the silversmiths, for example, you know, Diana had a big, uh, was one of the seven wonders of the world, a big temple to Diana. And uh, it was a fertility cult type of thing. So the city was steeped before the gospel message, the city was steeped in this kind of uh, aberrant behavior, much like Baal worship in the Old Testament. Uh, those things don't vary very, very far from, they don't vary very far uh, from the tools that Satan uses because he knows what, he knows what appeals to us. The baser, the baser instincts of, of uh, humanity and uh, those things are always glorified in these pagan cultures and pagan religions. 
That's where it was in Ephesus. It was just a place that was given over to licentiousness and and uh, evil and uh, sexually deviant behavior. Um, and it all started with Diana of the Ephesians and there at her grand temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. The Apostle Paul uh, had to be had to be chased out of the city because of what he was doing in, in Ephesus. But a strong church is what resulted in, uh, in the work there. So with that in mind, and let me describe the physical setting of Ephesus. Ephesus is the first of the seven churches. You, you roughly go north and then you'll go west and then back around in a crude circle to see the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, which now is in Turkey. Ephesus in those days sat on the shores, on the banks, on the shores of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the centuries that have followed have filled up that harbor with silt, and it's just not, it's nothing like it was back in its day. It was a grand harbor. Some say it was the largest harbor in the world, and they could bring in the largest ships in the world, which they weren't that big, but they were cargo ships uh, in and out of Ephesus all the time. Great trade coming in and out of Ephesus. There were four big, big roads, large roads that came and converged into Ephesus from all parts of the Roman Empire. Uh, and they brought their trade in and they took the goods back out from the cargo that came in on the ships. It was an active place. It was a wealthy place. Probably what was probably the largest bank in the world was there in Ephesus. It was unfortunately tied in, I think, with the worship of Diana in the temple there. But still, uh, some of the wealthiest people in the world deposited their wealth there in that bank. It was a commercial center uh, next to none in its day. And uh, so Rome... It, it, was, it was so wealthy and so important that Rome had made it a free city. That is to say, they could govern themselves apart from Rome, which was a, which was a big deal back then. So this was a, a big, important city laden with pagan ritual and religion, which means that there was, there was awful sin in the whole place, and, and that's how people believed they were supposed to live. Now, to that, to that place Paul came, and then this great church, it was really a great church in its day, was established. So, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, okay, probably what, what the deal is that the seven pastors, the seven, the seven the seven teaching elders, the seven pastors of the seven churches made a trip. Somehow, maybe the word got to them and uh, some historians believe that they made a trip to come and visit John in his prison setting and he had, he had seven scrolls, one for each of the seven churches, which is the revelation, the manifestation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Uh, so the first part of the, well, after, after the first part of the scroll, here in this part, 
which is Roman numeral number two, the things which are, that's chapters two and three, is this part. So to the, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, these things says, um, it's in the masculine, says the one, he says the one holding the seven stars, okay, uh, in his right hand. Walking in in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now you remember those have been identified. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars are the seven messengers, which in my view are the seven teaching elders or pastors. So he holds them in his right hand to review, to review what we know already. He holds them in the hand of his authority. So he has authority. Their, their job is just to be the messenger. Uh, the, the pastor's job really rather simple. It's just to do what Jesus says in his word and to teach his word. That's pretty simple. Uh, but one, one, should be, one should be very uh, aware of the, of, the, uh, of the burden and the heaviness of it because it requires... There are always people who want to debate or question or whatever. So a pastor, a, a, a messenger of a church, a pastor, teacher, a, a teaching elder, he has to be prepared for just about anything when it, with regard to his teaching. And that's an important thing. That's a lifelong work. You never get out of that. Uh, so he calls these, these seven are given, each given a letter, the, the, the revelation. And this part of it is for Ephesus. He is the one who holds those messengers. So they don't really have any authority other than what Christ would give them or appoint to them. And the main part of their authority is to understand his word and to teach it and to proclaim it. That's, that's about it. In his right hand, the hand of his authority, which is also a hand of protection. And now he's seen walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Those are the seven churches uh, that he's writing to, to whom he writes. Now, to go back to chapter one, the gift of the Father to the Son is the unveiling of who he is. He is seen as a picture of, of God Almighty. He is seen as God Almighty in his description, in, in, uh, in the description that's given of him in chapter one, we looked at that the last time or two, uh, the glorious appearance of God the Son, the second of the Godhead of the Trinity. So he's his hair that just shines brilliantly like white wool and all the other parts of, him, of himself described. This is, he looks like the Ancient of Days and he looks something like a, an eternal priest uh, and he looks like a judge because his feet are burnished bronze and they stamp on, step on sin and crush and burn sin in judgment. His eyes like fire, which means he's discerning. He can see everything and he sees through you and he burns away anything that doesn't please him. So, and then the, 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 the belt that he wears the, and the gold that shines from him, all of that, uh, all of that, not only is a depiction of an eternal priest, but it's also a depiction of a great king of kings and 
of the Ancient of Days, in a sense, like Daniel spoke of. So already he's been presented as this, well, as, as, as deity who has accommodated himself so that people can see him. So here's this like Shekinah glory. It's like the glory of God in a human form who is Jesus and who, who was Jesus of Nazareth and now, now having received his glory back that he prayed for. So we've seen that he's omnipotent. Oh man, he's all powerful. But now in verse, uh, verse one, he reveals himself as omniscient. He knows everything. Look at this. I know every, I have I have the seven stars in my right hand. I'm walking. Now the word walking there, parapeton, means to walk around or walk about or to tread around. So here's a lampstand, a golden lampstand, and God the Son is circling that thing and looking at it. And you go to the next one. He's circling. He knows these seven churches. He examines them. He knows everything that there is to know uh, about them. So now he's going to be seen as omniscient because verse 2 starts like this. I know. That, uh, that's a, that's a, a, a powerful and direct word, oida. Uh, it means that I know who you are. I know everything about you. Now he begins to describe them briefly. I know your works. Now, the two two words here, one would be translated like works and the other would be toil or labor. One is a stronger word than the other. The first general word, I know your works, erga. Uh, and then katon kapon, and the labor, the intense labor. The church at Ephesus was busy. They stayed busy uh, in their church and, and, and the Lord knew it. Uh, not just that, and the endurance. I know your works and the labor and, the, and your endurance. And your endurance. So they have, uh, they have a strong fortitude as a church. And Jesus recognizes that. They go, they go above and beyond the call of duty in a sense. I mean, they're hardworking people in the church. He recognizes that, so he brags on them. And they endured. Now, to, to, to live and try to have church in the middle of uh, Ephesus was no small task uh, to keep your people focused uh, on, on the holiness of the Lord and the holiness of the church, the mission of the church, um, Especially when, you know, you remember the silversmiths were the ones who pitched such a fit about losing business when people left, when they left uh, paganism going to Christianity. History teaches us that uh, labor unions back in the Roman Empire were built around the temples of gods and goddesses. So if you, if you were a silversmith, your labor union temple was the temple of Diana uh, in those days. And so it wouldn't have been, I'm sure it wouldn't have been just the silversmiths. Uh, it would have been all of the people who, all of the people who worked in a craft and their craft, uh, their, their craft succeeded in Ephesus because they were always making trinkets and making things for, 
especially for Diana, but for other of the gods as well. Well, if you're if you get you become a Christian, an idol, an idol is anathema. You don't ever want to have anything to do with an idol. Uh, so their business begin to crash. So they had to endure that. I know your endurance, and that you are, uh, and that you are not able. That you are not. Uh, that you just don't have the personal power to tolerate evil. Kakus evil. So, all right, well, the next phrase builds that up a little bit, modifies that, so let's look read on here. And you have uh, tested, you have, you have tried or tested those claiming to be apostles and are not, and you have found them False. Big church, a lot of activity. Uh, okay, so let's think about the church at Ephesus. They had a, 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 they 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 had uh, they had Paul as a teacher. They had Timothy. Paul later sent Timothy there as a teacher. Uh, they had John. They had John as a teacher. Man, they were full of of uh, of of Bible teaching and correct doctrine. So. Uh, they were built on teaching and it seems that something like what the book of Jude describes, some, some came in who claimed to be apostles. It's in the masculine. They were men. Men claiming to be apostles. And so they tested them. Now what was the litmus test? Well, the litmus test was the word of God. Uh, and when they came up with some teaching or some lifestyle, that was that was uh, opposed in the Word of God, or wasn't in the Word of God. They were branded as false apostles, and so Christ brags on them for that. He said, "You've done a good thing. You have you've tested those who come in here claiming to be apostles. They wanted to be part of this this big movement in Ephesus, but you tested them and you found that they were charlatans. They were false." So they knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles and they could put the litmus test of biblical truth and doctrinal purity up against anybody who comes into Ephesus claiming to be an apostle. And they could run those guys out of town by telling them, hey, this is not the way the Bible says. And you have perseverance and have endured for the sake of my name and have not grown uh, weary, have not grown weary. Endurance in a place like Ephesus, uh, not growing weary with, uh, first of all, they would have had the, uh, the, the Jews who would, who would argue against them. They would have the pagans who would argue against them. I'm sure they had Roman, Romans who would argue against them. Uh, and they haven't grown weary. Now, what have they endured? What have they done? They've done everything for the sake of the name of the Lord. He says, for the sake of my name. One thing we should always remember is that everything we do, we do in the name of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. We're, we're no good if we think, well, we, don't, we, don't, we have to be careful. We don't want to call ourselves 
we don't, we want to be careful. We don't want to we don't want to we want to do what Christ has told us to do, but let's just do it trying to be good and maybe Jesus will give us credit, but we have to be careful about putting the Christian tag on it. Well, of course, that's that's a terrible thing. That's uh, that's sinful. It's not acceptable in the sight of the Lord. And he bragged on the Ephesians because they endured for the sake of his name. Perseverance, endurance for the sake of his name. Didn't grow weary. But then here comes this conjunction, Allah. But, I tell you, you need to tremble when the Lord looks at you and says a lot of good things and then he uses a conjunction, but. But I have against you that you have abandoned your primary love, your principal preeminent love. You've abandoned it. Your foremost love, your preeminent love, protein, uh, your the, the thing that's the most important, the principal thing, you have abandoned. Aphikes. That that Greek word means that you've 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 cast it off. You've abandoned it. In 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 the Greek world, outside the church, that word is used in divorce papers. Aphikes, you've abandoned. You've abandoned your preeminent love. That's that's bad. So, so how are they doing all these other things? Well, it just became a tradition to them. It just seemed like the thing to do. They weren't doing it for the love of Jesus or for the sake of his name. They were doing it either because people expected them to or they thought it made them look good or made them look good in the community. I don't know. But Jesus knows. Jesus knew that they had abandoned their foremost love, their preeminent love. Now remember from where you have uh, fallen. You have fallen. You have fallen down. Now the word, the word is peptikos. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's not the word that speaks of standing away like apostasy. Uh, this word means like you fell down flat. You fell. You're not going anywhere. You fell down. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then he calls them uh, to the solution, to the remedy. And repent. And, and this is a good word right here. And then manufacture uh, poison. Your Bible, in the English, it may say, and do the first works or something like that, but it's a, it's a deeper word. It means to manufacture. Go back. Go back to the thing that you're energized to do and construct the first works. Go back to where you were. Find the joy. Rediscover the joy where you were and manufacture those things. But if not, I am coming to you. Okay, now this, remember, 
He said up there in verse 1 that he's walking around. He's encircling the seven lamp, the seven golden lampstands. Now the power of the message is in the messenger who he has in his right hand, the hand of his power, the hand of his authority. And this messenger is taking this message from the Lord to the church who knows everything about the church and he never stops walking around that lampstand. He's not going to stop. So he says, I'm coming to you if you don't repent and manufacture or construct the first works. I will, I'm coming to you. I will remove your lampstand out of its place if you should not repent. Repentance is called for twice here. Uh, at the beginning of his, of his threat and at the close of it to remove the lampstand. You know, you go to you go to the place that was Ephesus today, and it's not it's it's not that it's something else. It's it's all Islam there now. It's in Turkey. There's no church there um, like this. It's just it's just gone. It's it's not what it was. So there was no repentance. You know, Europe, for example, Europe is replete with grand church buildings that are more museums than anything else. Nobody goes to those churches anymore. Uh, of course, the church is not the building, it's, it's the people. Those of us who are gathering here, the best way we can do, we're in various homes, but we are the church. Now, we long to be together and we long to worship together, but the building where we worship is, is just a gathering place. It's, it's not the church. The church would be the people. So he has the authority. Of course, he can remove the lampstand. I tell you, in the course of my ministry, I have seen churches who were grand downtown churches 50 years ago. And today, they're, 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 they're gone. They're not there. They're empty. It's not there. And not just that, but churches scattered all around. Um, there's an implication here, and the implication is that if you stay on fire for Jesus and you always have him as your preeminent love in the work of the church and the whole thing is about him, uh, that work lasts and that work will keep going as long as it's that way. So you and I should be in love with Jesus and we gather at Shiloh because we love Jesus and in Jesus we love each other and because of Jesus, we love to do his works that he's called us and gifted us to do. So repentance is the key. Turn around, go back and, and construct, manufacture the, 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 the first works, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the, 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 the principal works, the main things that, that really, that really, make a difference in the world and in people's lives. But this you have that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Did you hear that? Jesus hates something. He hates the work of the Nicolaitans. Now who are the Nicolaitans? 
several several um, possibilities have been offered by by thoughtful scholars through the years. Um, someone says that there was a heretic named Nicolaus who who led the people uh, much like what Jude described into their own way. In other words, they were libertines. They could just do whatever they wanted to do regardless of what the Bible said because if they sinned, they would get more grace because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Now that may be, I don't know, I don't know if that's the case or not. Uh, the, the, the com, it's a compound word, nakei, which is uh, power, and laos, which is people, power of the people or power over the people. Uh, if it's power of the people, it's 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 like what you find in uh, in, in modern in in modern uh, movements today within the church, where you know we'll just pick and choose what we want to do with regard to what Jesus says. It's our choice. We are our own individual, and we will do as we see fit, whatever makes us feel good. Now it could have been that, uh, and it could have been. Power over the people could have. Some believe that this was the first introduction into the church of the hierarchy of the clergy. In other words, uh, as in as in the Roman Church, where it's a complete hierarchy. It starts with the Pope, and he has infallib- infallibility, and then it goes down from there to the priest, and uh, and the people are rather meaningless uh, in in what happens. So some believe that it was this was the first introduction of that. Well, s- since Jesus and since his word doesn't dis- define it for us anywhere, the best thing we can do is say this. Whatever it was, he hated it. And if he hated it, it was something that people got into. It was some sort of cultic behavior that they got into that was that was uh non it was abiblical. It was it was uh non-biblical, it was unbiblical. It was something that uh, obviously was not permitted in Scripture. If you just study the Scriptures and obey the Scriptures and stay within the Scriptures, uh, he's not, he's not going to hate you uh, or hate your works. But uh, these, these people did things that Jesus hated and the Ephesians, Ephesians hated those works as well. Uh, the one having an ear, let him hear. Akusato. Hear. Hear. You either hear or you don't hear. Uh, there are a lot of times that words are aimed at me within earshot that I'm just not hearing. I don't listen to it. But this is the one's who are attentive to what's being said. The one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Spirit is guiding our teaching. The Holy Spirit, we stay in the Word, the Holy Spirit, that's a strong connection that we have. Now, if we depart from the Word, it becomes something that's not spiritual. But in that, the Spirit says to the churches, so the one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one overcoming, um, to the one who is victorious, to the one who prevails. Nikonte. Matter of fact, Nikay, part of the part of the word of Nicolaitans is in there. But this is an overcomer. This is a prevailer. You think of what they had to overcome in Ephesus. To the one prevailing, to the victor, uh, to the overcomer, to the conqueror, I will give to him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the third and last time that the word paradise is used. So, you know, it, it, whatever you do, may it may kill you. So what? Hey there, you're dead. Come here and take a bite of the fruit of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Which, which of those be worse? To stay back there or to go there? Uh, so there's the there's the simple promise of Christ. To the one overcoming, I will give to him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I've talked a lot about that. I've talked quite a bit about that, and I'm not going to get back into the definition of paradise again. Hopefully you caught on to what it is um, the last time I, I discussed it. Uh, but the promise is, that uh, there's, a, there's a place for us that far surpasses anything that we could imagine in, in this life. And we have this promise. Now, who's the overcomer? Well, the one who's born again. First John, what, 5 and verse 4? Uh, to overcome the world is an overcomer. You're born again. Uh, John defines an overcomer. We're in Christ. We've overcome the world. So it's rather simple. It's not that difficult of a definition to define an overcomer. Uh, the one who is born again. I will give to him to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now that's a, that's a definite, that's a definitive promise uh, here. Uh, I will give. It's a future indicative, but it's in the active. It means that he will do it to us in the time that is coming for us to eat of the tree of life. We all know about the tree of life. Adam and Eve failed there when they first were introduced to the tree of life. But the redeemed saint will not fail, and we have our part in that place where we can freely eat of the tree of life. Gonna stop there, and then uh, I think uh, within a little while, uh, Jesse has, has a message as well. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, strengthen us to be overcomers, O oh Lord. Help us to be strong in your word so that we can test those by your word who try to teach us something that's not right and give us that discernment, if you would, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, at last,
We long to be carried to the tree of life in the paradise of God where we can live forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, thank you for being here with this study.